Hi, Mary. How's it going? Yeah, good, Dan. Very good. So, Dan, I think probably the question on everyone's lips now is what's the probability you get a summer holiday this year? Yeah, what a good question. For those not tracking it, my holiday probability index sort of bottomed out just below 50% about three weeks ago. And then I took it just up above 50% a couple of weeks ago. I think it's nudged a little bit higher since then, I must admit. Obviously, we're all waiting for the big announcement on the travel corridors. But I would put it up at around 60% right now. And obviously, there's a good chance it could go higher than that. But we'll see. 60% punchy. I like it. They'll be selling options on it before you know it. <laughs> and just to clarify, summer lasts till December, does it? <laughs> Some places in the world, yeah. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today on Investment Uncut, we are talking about inflation and we are delighted to be joined by LCP senior partner, John Camfield. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. John, would you be able to go ahead and tell the listeners a bit about your role at LCP and your area of expertise? Yes, I advise large companies and trustees of larger pension schemes typically on all matters to do with pensions risk. But I have particular areas of expertise in two areas. One is around the DB transfer market, where I've written widely on that and been involved in industry work on that. And then secondly would be inflation, which is what we're talking about today. And you've actually got a role on quite an influential panel there as well, John. Yes, I have. I've been part of the advisory panel for consumer prices, which is a panel that advises the national statistician on all things inflation, RPI and CPI. I've been on that panel for around 12 months now and giving advice, particularly in relation to the pensions aspects of inflation. Yeah, so you're sort of telling what the impacts will be on schemes and so forth of any changes. In- yeah, that's it. Pension scheme members, pension schemes and employers. And in the last 12 months while you've been on that panel, not much has happened in inflation news, hey? Oh, Mary. Not been keeping you busy at all. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Lots of change, which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. But the biggest change has been a review of inflation stats by the House of Lords initially. That was initially kicked off by, before that, by the Governor of the Bank of England. And that led to a proposal, government and ONS, to fundamentally reform RPI. And they're currently consulting on that. We'll get deep into that in a second, hopefully. But just quickly before we start, John, just keen to hear what's one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile? Oh, well, something I very much enjoy doing is long distance walking. And I've got a background lifetime project, which is to walk around the coast of the island that most of you will be standing on right now, the United Kingdom or the main island of that. It's over 5,000 miles. I tend to walk maybe 500 miles a year around bits of the coast. I've done most of the south coast and east coast of England, but obviously a lot more to come, including terrifying coast of scotland which is rather <laughs> very beautiful so it's going to take you a bit further afield that's a fantastic challenge john i've heard you say that a couple of times and i'm fascinated by it in many ways i guess what i was wondering was presumably you've done all the easy gettable bits at this point have you like you say in the south and the east and now you're presumably day trips are no good to you anymore you need to be doing so what is it week two weeks stints away to walk it 
exactly that. It's getting harder and harder. So far, I've aimed for sort of five-day trips to do 100 miles over a long weekend. But increasingly, I'm having to set aside 10-day trips to 120 miles, maybe, on Scottish coast or Welsh coast. And these sort of challenges like that, you often find you get these groups of enthusiasts around the country doing it. Is that the case for this? Is it a well-known thing that you do get people you've met that are really into it? It's rare that you meet them. Right. all at different points along the coast. There are a number of people online who are doing it. There's three blogs I follow very closely. They give a lot of tips on maps, where to walk, where not to walk, how to get over certain inaccessible areas, etc. So, Okay. And do you have a time target for this, number of years or that sort of thing? I don't. It's just too big. It's too big a project. I've been at it for about seven or eight years. If I completed it in another seven or eight, I would be absolutely delighted. I suspect it may be 20. Right. Well, good luck. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, turning to the subject of inflation then, I suppose starting off at a high level, I mean, inflation is it's pretty fundamental to all things investing, isn't it? You know, Individual investors naturally want to try and keep pace with or, or outperform inflation. A lot of pensions are naturally linked to inflation anyway. So the challenge of investing to try and beat or match inflation, I suppose, is really at the heart of investing. But inflation in some ways is notoriously difficult to actually nail down, isn't it, John? And that's where we get into all this definitions of the CPIs, the RPIs, the CPIHs and all that. So what does all that sort of mean, really? Absolutely right, Dan. We're all trying to target inflation, particularly pension schemes. But what is inflation? And inflation historically over many decades has been assessed relative to this retail price index, the RPI, which was a, an index many of us have grew up with really over many years was very familiar. But increasingly over the 90s, it was criticised relative to international standards. And indeed, the European Union and the European statistical authorities brought in a standardised measure, which we adopted as CPI, Consumer Prices Index. And that is the number that's comparable to most Western countries' measures of inflation. That became the Bank of England target. There were then further changes made to both RPI and CPI, which introduced what is now recognised as being some errors into RPI. And eventually, not too many years ago, RPI was downgraded by our own Office of National Statistics to say it was no longer a national statistic, a good statistic. It had too many errors in it. But of course, the history is that most pension schemes are still linked to RPI. So you have these multiple measures, which can create some confusion amongst members and some challenges for investors, including DB schemes. Not to mention the trillion pounds or whatever of index linked gilts or whatever it is out there that are also linked to RPI. So I suppose all this faffing around with indices would be fine if it wasn't for the fact that it really matters because of pension promises, assets, and all these other things. So to say there's a spotlight on it is putting it mildly, isn't it? Absolutely. And these days, it is pensions where this really matters most, I think. There are some other headline areas where these indices are used and debated. So for example, rail fares, still linked to RPI. But of course, the government could change the rules on that tomorrow. I mean, there are cost implications, but legally, there's a process that you could go through within a few years to fix that. Or student loans still linked to RPI. They could change the rules. So there are no legal constraints. The challenges with pensions is the amount of money involved and the legal constraints. So it really is a tough issue to work through the ONS are saying over the next 10 years and what it may mean for pension schemes that we advise. 
Dan said very rightly, you know, this really matters and it matters for pension schemes. I guess the reason it matters is because these measures aren't all valued at the same level. If they were at the same sort of level, the impact would be far smaller. And the gap between them has grown over the years. So from looking forward now, it's expected that if there are no further changes to RPI and CPI, the gap will be 1% per annum. It has been at about that level for over five years now. 1% per annum on a one-year basis doesn't seem an awful lot. But of course, if you accumulate that over 20 years or 40 years, I mean, over 20 years, it's 20% difference suddenly between the two indices. And that's an extraordinary difference for two indices that are both meant to measure the inflation in the economy. How can one be 20% higher than the other? And I guess I'm picking that. What is the driver for that 1% gap? There are a few aspects to that. The key one is what's called the formula effect. That's a bit techy. That's what the statisticians call it. And it arises because the RPI index, this is the old historic one with errors in it now, uses what's called an arithmetic formula. And the newer indice, the CPI, uses a geometric formula. Two mathematical terms that won't go into But the point is that at their core, the different ways in which the statistician push them through a spreadsheet and add and multiply numbers together just results in different numbers, even though the underlying data collected is the same. And I guess the debate these days seems to have moved on a little bit from where it was a few years ago. So the debate, I forget this right, isn't so much which is right or wrong anymore. The debate is more settled on RPI is so-called wrong. CPI so-called rights to simplify things a little bit, but how do we move the world towards CPI? Is that fair or have I oversimplified it? That's a fair summary, Dan. The ONS, Office of National Statistics, have been absolutely clear that in their view, RPI is flawed and significantly flawed and should not be used. They've put out a lot of material on that. And so the debate now is how do we move towards CPI or indeed its cousin that I haven't mentioned yet, which is the CPIH. And the H stands for housing. So it includes housing costs within the CPI measure. And I guess going through the detail, what is the proposal and where have we got to with it? So the proposal that's been made, first of all, to understand it's been made by the ONS itself rather than government. So it's not politically dependent. And they have said in order to ensure that the RPI index is sensible and doesn't overinflate, if I can use that pun, inflation, they will no later than 2030, which is when they've got absolute power to do so, they will change the RPI formula so that underlying it becomes the CPIH formula. So there will still be something called RPI that will still exist, but the underlying formula will be the same as CPIH. It will be called RPI, but in effect, it will be CPIH. And that gets around some of the legal issues in terms of pension schemes where RPI is hard-coded into the rules of the scheme, I guess. That's right. And also index-linked guilts that Dan has mentioned, that both pension schemes and index-linked guilts refer to RPI will continue to refer to RPI. It's just that the underlying formula will just be the CPIH formula. So suddenly people's pensions will only be going up with CPIH rather than RPI, and index-linked guilts will only be going up with CPIH rather than RPI. Yeah, in terms of where we are with that proposal, I mean, there's a consultation that's currently in play, which concerns how we're going to move and when we're going to move on that timescale. That's it. The starting point is the ONS have said they'll definitely be moving from 2030, but there's some extra consultation bits around that. 
The first is the technicality of exactly how they will move between those two formulae approaches in the year of change. If that year of change is 2030, then in 2030, how do you switch from one index approach to another index approach? That's a techie consultation, if you like. The more significant consultation is being carried out by Treasury. And that's because under law, the Chancellor has the power to bring forward the date of change to as early as 2025. And so the Chancellor is consulting and the consultation closes on 21st of August, extensive consultation, looking for as many people to respond as possible on whether or not that change should be made 2025 or 2030 or someday in between. Okay, so it's definitely happening. And it's happening at some point in that five-year window. And you can respond to the consultation on when you think it should happen and on the techie subject of how it should happen when it does. Yes, those are the questions they're asking. Of course, many in the pensions industry will respond. And indeed, I think, to be honest, Treasury expects them to respond on the wider issue of whether or not it should happen in the first place, whether or not there should be compensation, whether or not this is fair. I'm sure many people will respond on those issues. But the actual consultation questions are quite narrow. Yeah. Okay. And broadly, which are the different kind of groups you would see likely to respond both positively and negatively to that change? Obviously, we've got pensioners, whoever represents the pensioners themselves, presumably would be against that change happening early and against the change happening at all, potentially, because they get lower pensions. I guess that's clear. What other groups do we have in the debate which sort of might have a voice and might be making cases in different directions? So within the pensions world, it would be a range of schemes, employers who support schemes and investment managers that I would expect to be responding. And within the insurance world, I think there'll be a number of insurers as well, particularly those who write annuities and bulk annuities. But there are different categories of schemes, employers, investment managers who will be winners and losers here. So I think there'll be a wide range of responses. Some will be pushing for reform, some saying no, some pushing for compensation, some no, um, because the amounts involved for some people are big, multiple millions, and in some case, multiple billions of money being potentially made or lost on this change. Yeah. And compensation, you've mentioned a couple of times. Should we just go into the detail of what that could look like? Yes. Thanks, Mary. I think the first thing to say on compensation is that there's no proposal from Treasury ONS that there should be compensation. And I certainly don't expect anyone at that end, government end, to be offering compensation. But having said that, a lot of people in the industry are talking about the possibility of compensation. And we already know that a number will be arguing for it. What people mean by that is they want to maintain the status quo. They feel that that's the starting fair position. And they are therefore going to argue that instead of the RPI formula being the CPIH formula going forward, let's say post-2030 or sooner, it should be set to be equal to CPIH plus a bit. Plus a bit might be, for example, the 1% that I mentioned earlier, so that in essence, RPI post-2030 is still roughly the same level it is now. That would mean that pensioners still get the same pension increases that they're expecting now, that index-linked holders, index-linked guilt holders still get the returns on index-linked guilts that they're expecting now, and schemes and employers still have the same 
net pension costs are expecting now. And there are arguments on one hand as to why that is fair and on the other hand as to why that's not fair. Yes. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it really gets at the heart of the issue, the existential issue of what does fairness actually mean? Because I've sort of changed my personal view on this a little bit, or at least become a bit more neutral. I mean, I probably used to start from the point of view of saying, well, what would be fair would be to continue what the previous status quo was. But then I have seen some quite persuasive arguments that say, well, hang on, what makes you think the status quo was so fair? There was things that looked quite unfair about the status quo. And that is just a very difficult argument, isn't it? And I'm glad I'm not the one who needs to decide or needs to argue it either way. But it's tough, isn't it, John, to really say what's fair here? It is. You can definitely argue it either way. If you just think about it from a pensioner perspective, is it fair that a pensioner continues to get RPI increases when everyone recognises, I say everyone, not everyone, the ONF recognise and state that that is a measure of inflation that is too high and doesn't reflect true inflation, doesn't even reflect true inflation for pensioner householders. The ONS are those are the entity that are in control of this index and they have a statutory duty to produce a sensible inflation figure. So they can simply change this index from 2030 to what they consider to be sensible inflation. And we can all stand around and look at it and argue for compensation or not at the end of the day, the ONS will say what inflation is and that will be the figure that gets used. And why is it 2030? So older index-linked gilts that were sold by the Debt Management Office some time ago had some special protections for buyers of the index-linked gilts that said that RPI could only be changed in certain circumstances and with certain agreements. And one of those agreements was the chance of the Exchequer in, in some situations. More modern index link gilts, if I can call them that, and in particular, all the ones that run out beyond 2030 don't have those constraints on them. And so the ONS have complete flexibility with the index for post-2030, whereas pre-2030, they need the Chancellor's agreement. Understood. That's been a great little explainer on RPI indices and the reform and the direction and all that. I want to get on to talking about where inflation actually is now and where it's going to go. But before we move off that, I guess, what are the key timeline milestones for people to be aware of in that debate? Then when are we going to get a bit more clarity on where this is going? So the consultation closes on 21st of August. I would expect a pretty quick response to that in September, probably otherwise October, because it's market sensitive. And I'm aware that the Treasury and ONS want to move quite swiftly. The key thing to look out for will be whether or not the Chancellor decides to bring forward the date to 2025. And that's quite soon, isn't it? It's four years away, five years away, soon to be four years away. That could all happen very quickly. I think if you'd asked me three or four months ago, I would have said very unlikely. It would be a 2030 change. But now, with the economy and the situation that it's in, the possibility that the Chancellor could save money on index-linked guilt payments as soon as 2025, I think you have to ask yourself the question whether or not the Chancellor sitting there, it could well be 2025 as a date of change. So that's what to look out for. When that's announced, key thing to consider will be member communications for some schemes. I think they'll want to write to members. Others won't. That could be relevant. But in the meantime, there's also things to consider about hedging strategies that will come on to for investment and what is the financial impact on your scheme and whether or not you should consider responding to the consultation as well. And of course, markets move to price these things 
in advance, as always, don't they? So we've seen moves over recent months. Obviously, things can change day by day, but broadly, some degree of this is already priced in, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's hard to measure that precisely, but I think as of today, the majority of commentators would agree that at least half of this change is already priced in from 2030, perhaps as much as 70 and 80%, probably a little bit more in swap markets than gilt markets. And of course, if the change happens from 2025, well, that change isn't priced in yet. Right. Okay. Well, should we move on for a second and maybe come back a little bit closer to home and talk about where inflation might go over coming months? I think you put out a piece quite recently, which we'll link to in the show notes, talking about some different scenarios for inflation and where it might go. So why don't you talk us through what you see happening over the next sort of few months? Yeah, the inflation stats have very recently been published for May by the ONS, and they followed the same pattern as the numbers published for April, which was plunging numbers for inflation, as you might expect. Still positive. In the current environment, but still positive, approaching zero. We've done some thinking about what might happen to inflation under various scenarios just in the next few months. And a key month that we're looking out for is September. September is a, a really important month for pensions, both for state benefits, state pension benefits, that's the month that gets picked up. And for many pension schemes, not all, but many pension schemes linked to September inflation to assess their pension increase to grant maybe from the 1st of January or from the 1st of April the following year. And so if inflation is very low or negative in September, that will have implications for many pension schemes and for state benefits. And so, John, what could make the inflation measure go sort of negative by September? I think there are a couple of themes on that, Mary. One would be the housing market. If there was a real tumble of 5%, 10%, then I would expect that to have a big impact on RPI. But both from RPI and CPI perspective, just general prices of goods that are coming back online if shops, restaurants, holiday providers are all trying to encourage us to spend money, that could cause tumbling prices over the summer. So that could lead to negative inflation in, in September which from a pension scheme's perspective is a challenging situation to communicate to members. I mean, the good news is that from a member perspective, that most pension increases have a floor of zero. So you can't actually reduce someone's pension, so it won't go down. I say that's good news. Of course, a flat pension for a pensioner doesn't seem like good news. And also, when you've got your index-linked guilt values going down with negative inflation, it's actually going to cost a scheme money to keep pensions level. So there's some challenging things to work through for schemes if we end up with negative inflation in September. Right. And I guess thinking about the other scenario, what could lead inflation to spike in the next few months? I think a sort of V-shaped recovery potentially. I mean, prices have been depressed for the last few months. I wouldn't expect an enormous spike in the next few months, but there could be some sort of spike. If the housing market rebounds very quickly, if people get back to shops and restaurants and holidays this summer in the UK, 60% likely, as you said, Dan, at the beginning, your holiday. Hopefully, you can go and spend a lot of money and keep the local restaurant prices up. But that sort of thing could lead to a spike. I think that's less likely this year in my mind. I think what is possible, though, is in the medium to longer term, there could be some inflation stoked with the amount of money that the Bank of England is needing to print, putting it bluntly, through one form or another. So, John, I mean, how likely would you say it is that we could see negative inflation in August, September? Do you think it's something that's pretty likely or is it sort of an outside risk? To me, having 
done some projections, I'd say 50-50, reasonably likely. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I think inflation, my best guess is it stays pretty low and close to zero over the next three or four months and may well dip below or stay just above. From a practical perspective, presumably there have been issues in actually getting out and measuring it in this environment. I mean, it might be naive here, but people go out and literally count white t-shirts and look at the prices of socks in M&S and that sort of stuff. Is that what they do? Yeah, you're not being naive. That's what they normally do. That's exactly it. There's an army of people who work for the ONS who literally go out and collect prices of stuff in e.g. M&S. Other brands are available. But you can't do that at the moment. You're right. Uh, you can't go and collect prices physically, but also some goods just aren't being sold. I mean, the classic one is the, the price of a pint in your local pub. What is that today? Well, the good doesn't even exist. So at the moment, what's happening is the ONS are imputing prices from elsewhere. So for example, price of the pub in the pint will be imputed off the price of alcohol in Tesco's. But as and when those prices come back online over the months of July and August, we're all hoping, they'll come back into the index. And to the extent there's been a 5% increase or reduction in those prices in the meantime, suddenly they will hit the index in those months as they're brought back in. So we could see some slightly wacky moves in the index if that happens to a large degree then? Yes, we could. And the same is true, perhaps most significantly, of the housing market. The last couple of months, the ONS haven't included the impact of house prices in the RPI measure because there just hasn't been activity enough that's statistically valid enough to do that. A sudden surge in transactions and those transactions are then statistically valid as a sample to bring back into the index. It's possible that those transactions happen at prices either 10% below or 10% above what they were three or four months ago. And suddenly you get hit with a big move in index. So I think we're in it for a volatile time with inflation. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because like you're saying, it's been pretty stable for a long time. I mean, obviously, some people hang on the inflation announcements whenever they are every month or whatever. But generally, it's been pretty steady for almost years, really, hasn't it, before there's been any interest in it. So that's interesting, you're saying there's almost an artificial period of stability, and then potentially some volatility over the summer. Yes, absolutely. It's made me smile over many years now that you get these headlines every month that say, big news, inflation down 0.1%. Really? (laughs) Is that really big news? We're going to see some bigger swings going forward, would be my expectation. In terms of the composition of what's actually in inflation, it can easily escape our attention, can't it? I mean, we've talked a little bit about housing, lots of transport costs are in there, I suppose, your day-to-day basket of goods. I don't know, would they start including stuff like Netflix subscriptions and Zoom subscriptions now? Do you know if there's been any changes to the basket because of consumption patterns this year or is that too soon? There will be changes. It's looked at every year and adjustments made. Typically, they're not big adjustments, but over time, exactly those sorts of things get brought into the index. It is meant to reflect the average spending of UK households collectively. So if we're spending money on it, it ends up getting included. But equally, if we're spending less on it, it'll presumably get downrated, like airfares, pints in the pub, uh, dinners, etc. Yes. Now, at the moment, because it only gets adjusted once a year, all those things, pints in the pub, are still in the index at their full level that they were six months ago. There will be a real challenge. I think it's February that it gets announced and reviewed. There'll be a real challenge if spending patterns are still where they are today it'll be tough for the ONS to work out what to do then. 
at the moment, those weightings haven't changed. They last for a year. So we've been talking a lot about where inflation might go and we've been talking a lot about what might happen this year. I guess if we take this back to kind of impact for different investors, maybe we start with individuals. What would the impact be for individuals? I think if you put yourselves in the shoes of an individual investor, one of the key things individuals are usually looking to do is beat inflation in the medium to long term, protect themselves against inflation. And from what we've talked about, there's a considerable uncertainty about what future inflation will be. And it could take off significantly, for example, although there may remain with deflation. So I would have thought that the current uncertainty around RPI reform that we've talked through and also what's happening with the COVID-19 fallout would mean that individual investors may well be more inclined to seek more inflation protection going forward. Obviously, that's a challenge with index-linked gilts. Does that make sense as an individual investor to lock into negative yields? I'm not so sure. But looking for other investments that will match and beat inflation over the future could be an important focus. Yeah, that's the issue, isn't it? We've just spent a lot of time talking about what inflation might do this summer. But of course, for all investors, what they're really going to be caring about is what it does probably over the next 10 years. And from what you're saying, John, those could be completely different things. We could look, have negative inflation over the summer and then high inflation for the rest of the 10 years. So I guess it's an extraordinarily difficult problem. I mean, the way I've thought about this for individual investors is kind of thinking that there's always that choice there, isn't there? You can look to try and invest in instruments that match inflation, or you can just look to try and invest for growth and try and outperform it that way. And both of those have just got so much tougher in an environment where real interest rates on gills and things are negative. And actually, you got into a situation where individual investors have to take quite a lot of investment risk just to break even against inflation at the moment with where rates are, which obviously makes life pretty difficult for them. I guess if inflation were to be lower, if it were to be negative, you might say, well, actually, that makes that slightly easier for them to match it, potentially, is one argument. I certainly think there was a time was in the 90s or whatever, you could invest in index linked gilts, link your future returns to inflation and get a nice little return on top of that anyway. That's obviously long gone. So as John said, the challenge there for individuals, if they do want to have a return that is really strongly linked to inflation, it's very hard to do at decent levels of return. And those sort of assets are, as we know, those sort of assets are very highly sought of and prices for them are very high. Yeah, absolutely. So so tricky for individuals, I guess. Um, and, and what about, I mean, John, you mentioned one of the very key players in this in this market with, with an impact is, is pension schemes. So impact on different pension schemes and I guess actions that trustees of pension schemes can be taking at the moment. Yes, many trustees of pension schemes have been reviewing their hedging portfolio. So these are the assets they hold in order to protect themselves against inflation risk and interest rate risk. So in the context of inflation risk, all of this uncertainty around inflation has sometimes had an impact on pension schemes to put it in a place where trustees didn't expect to be. And it's worth reviewing the hedging to make sure trustees are still protecting themselves against inflation risks in the way that they first anticipated. Yeah, so to summarise that, I suppose, for the larger investors, for the defined benefit pension schemes, etc., we're sort of saying, think hard about the hedges you've got in place, look carefully at the different instruments there, worry a little bit about the effects of negative inflation, given that your pension promises to members can't sort of fall in value. I agree, Dan. There's a lot of detail that can be looked at here and is worth looking into. To what extent do you want to hedge RPI or CPI over what periods? Do you consider inflation at particular future periods to appear to be 
very expensive and therefore you want to have less of it, but you want to buy inflation protection at other times, maybe beyond even 2040 or 2045 or 50, where it appears to be cheaper. As inflation, long-term inflation expectations move around a bit, do you want to change the makeup of that inflation protection and maybe move towards more fixed protection rather than inflation linked as inflation expectations come down, but you can't reduce pension increases. So I know I've got a bit techie on all of that. There's a lot of features to this. And if you've put in place inflation hedging maybe four or five years ago and thought that you were doing a certain job, you can be pretty sure that if you looked at it again in detail now, it wouldn't still be doing the same job. The question of hedging, it can always sound quite technical, can't it? At the end of the day, I suppose, we just spent quite a while debating what might happen to inflation in August let alone in 2050, which is in 30 years' time. And so on a very simple level, the question of hedging is just saying, well, what do any of us know about what's happening in 2050 with inflation? could be anywhere. So why would we want to take that risk? We just want to hedge that out. We want to minimize our exposure to that, I guess, is what it all comes down to, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, exactly. What about the question of the relationship between equity returns and inflation then? Because that's often thought of, it's often mentioned in the old finance textbooks a little bit, that sort of equities ought to match inflation. What would you say to that, John? I can see the theory of that. And I think over the super long term, most economists, financial economists, and even actresses would absolutely agree with that. But the challenges for DB pension schemes particularly is they don't have the super long term anymore. There's a relatively short time frame of a decade or two, which is relatively short in investment terms, over which they need to beat inflation uh, be protected against interest rates, and are probably many schemes over a two-decade period heading towards an insurance regime and completely hedging out those risks. So the question is, can a pension scheme afford to take that risk over that sort of time frame when you might find yourself, e.g. this year, in a COVID-19 situation and market crashes, and you certainly won't be outperforming inflation if you looked at the last 12 months of returns on equities. So it's all about balancing the risk with the opportunity there, I think. Yeah. And there's there's another point there just around markets as well. I mean, even from an individual's perspective, you might have a long time frame. I mean, if you look at UK equities, even looking at UK equities, if you look at the companies there, they're not going to be that geared towards UK inflation. They're quite global companies. And most, certainly most big investors and even most individual investors are investing globally now anyway. And UK inflation is sort of dropping the ocean really when it comes to the global picture, isn't it? So global equities could be much more likely to react to inflation in the US or probably China now. John, thank you so much for joining us today. If the listeners want to find out more about you and find any material you release, where can they find you? So I can be found on the LCP website. I've got a profile on there and also LinkedIn. Great. Great. John, any recommendations for our listeners other than maybe good places to go walking? Yeah. Well, concentrating on DB pension schemes, which is my main area of expertise. I would suggest trustees, if they haven't done so already, should review their inflation hedging. They should understand the impact of RPI reform on their pension scheme financially, whether or not they're a winner or a loser. They should be mindful of the possible need to communicate to members about this as we go through the rest of the year. should be aware of what their rules say about their pension increases and how they may change. A long list here, but finally, to consider responding to the consultation. I'd encourage everyone to consider that. It's a major change to the financial systems of underpins pension schemes. 
it's worth thinking about responding to that. Okay. Are there any sort of books, TV shows, podcasts, anything like that that you'd recommend for the listeners? Oh, nothing on inflation that comes to mind. (laughs) But some books that I have really appreciated have been by a chap called Matthew Syad, who sometimes writes in The Times as well. Yes. Matthew was a table tennis champion. I think he got a Commonwealth Games medal for table tennis, but now writes quite widely around management theory. A couple of books, Rebel Ideas, or and another one, Black Box Thinking. I found both very helpful in challenging my own thinking. And so finally, John, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing in investing? Oh, well, I guess for that, I'd go back to the comments I was making earlier around the importance of the technicalities of inflation hedging. I think when something gets that technical, it's easy not to appreciate it. I put it to one side and say it's just too hard. But actually, that can really matter for a pension scheme. And making sure that your inflation hedging is working for you has never been more important. That's techie detail for a pension scheme from an individual perspective, individual investor perspective. We've talked about inflation hedging as well. You don't need to get so techie about it, but thinking about how you're protecting yourself against future inflation risk is really important. Right. All about inflation. Yeah, indeed. I would say that, wouldn't I? (laughs) Well, John, it's been an absolutely great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've really enjoyed it. It's my pleasure. Thanks, John. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.